Today on Basic, Jimmy Kimmel. I had this idea. I want to do a show for guys. I called Adam Carolla on the phone, and that's when I thought of the title, The Man Show. The only idea I had for it was at the end of the episode, we would have women in bikinis jumping on trampolines. Michael Eisner was like, what the fuck is this? Our audience was 38% female, and our producers were women. Adam and I decided we'd had enough. It just became something other than what we intended it to be. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Basic. I'm Doug Herzog, former TV executive and cable weasel. And I'm Jen Cheney, a TV critic for Vulture and New York Magazine, and a non-cable weasel. Basic is the official podcast of the unofficial history of basic cable television. From MTV to Mad Men, we explore the shows, networks, personalities, and milestone moments that defined TV in the cable era. Today, our guest is ABC's Jimmy Kimmel. Yes, we're so excited to have Jimmy as our our first guest on the very first episode. As many of you know, he got his start in cable on Comedy Central, first as the co-host of Win Ben Stein's Money and later on The Man Show, which famously pushed the feminist movement forward by leaps and bounds. Just kidding. It did not do that. And now he's evolved into a guy who's known as much for his political commentary as he is for being funny. So let's get right to it with Jimmy Kimmel. We are so excited to welcome Jimmy Kimmel to Basic. Jimmy, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. You know, it's uh, the title of your podcast could potentially be insulting. Well, it's a play on words, I think, is what we're going for. Right, Doug? Yeah. And also, we're trying to insult people. I have a thousand percent. Do you remember when you first got cable television? Oh, Not only do I remember it, it was one of the biggest events of my life. My dad lost his job. We were living in Las Vegas. We'd lived there since I was nine years old. I never thought I'd move from Las Vegas. I thought I'd be there my whole life. I was going to UNLV. I was in my first year of college, and my dad got a job in Phoenix. And I assumed that, like many college students, I would continue going to UNLV away from my parents. But it was too expensive. So my dad said, you're moving to Phoenix. And I said, there's no way I'm moving to Phoenix. And I looked for an apartment with my now band leader, Cleto, my best friend since I was a kid. And we couldn't find anything that we could afford. I think I was making like $5 an hour at the time. And my parents said, you have to come to Phoenix. And my sister and I, we put our feet down and said, we're not moving to Phoenix unless we get cable. (laughs) <laughs> and that's how we got cable. And so I spent the next year just watching TV nonstop the whole time. We didn't have premium cable now. Well, we're talking we're a, talking basic here only, Jim. No HBO, none of that. <laughs> Nothing that cost a dollar extra. But we did have the basic package, and that was good enough for me. The big deal for me was taping Letterman every night and sometimes not getting the show because the rabbit ears weren't in the right spot. So some days I'd come home from school and I'd put it on, I'd get nothing but snow, and that was devastating. So so I believe your first big break in cable was on Win Ben Stein's Money. Am I right about that? I'd done this game show. I was a writer on a game show and like a character on a game show that never got on the air. Fred Silverman was the producer. For those who don't know, was this larger-than-life character who ran all three networks, and no one ever did that. He ran CBS, NBC, and ABC. And he looked like a cartoon character. If you drew a network executive, it looked like Fred Silverman. So Fred was producing this show. It was in the twilight of his career. And it was a bad show. It wasn't going to get on. I was kind of hosting the run-throughs. And when we practice it in the office, I would be the host. And we worked on it for a few weeks. And then they're like, okay, Fred's going to come in today. And we have to present it to him. And they let me present it to Fred. And at the end, and I swear to God, this happened. At the end of the presentation, Fred said, 
cancel the host auditions. This kid is the host. He didn't even know who my name was. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm the what? <laughs> you know, which it was weird because we were developing this show at the same time as they were developing another show. And a guy named Mark Wahlberg, not Marky Mark Wahlberg, this other guy was the host of the other show. And he was very good. He was very polished. He looked good. I was wearing my father-in-law's sport jacket. My father-in-law outweighed me by probably 60 pounds at this audition. <laughs> so I hosted the presentation in front of a group of about 50 or 60 buyers. And at the end of the presentation, no one was interested in the show, but a guy named Michael Davies contact me and ask me, will you host another show? And he told me about the show. And I said, that doesn't sound good. I don't really want to do that. He's like, what? <laughs> so yeah, that doesn't sound good. And he was confused. And then a couple of months later, he called me back and had another show that he pitched and I rejected. And then a couple months later, he called and he said, okay, this show's called Win Ben Stein's Money. I was like, well, that sounds interesting. Uh, who's Ben Stein? And he told me he's the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Bueller. And I said, oh, oh. And so the idea was that you could win Ben's money and it was going to be Ben's real money. And they set up a system where that would be true. And I thought, well, that seems good. I'll come in and test out to be the, the sidekick on that show. And uh, I went in and tested and Ben and I fell in love almost immediately. And we did the presentation and it went really well. But the only network that was interested in it was Comedy Central. And the truth is, Michael did not want it to go to Comedy Central. He felt that was the like, that was a worst case scenario. So I thought, well, that's cool. I'd like to be on Comedy Central. This was pre South Park, I think, right? Pre Daily Show. That's Comedy Central was not really a thing. Absolutely. And in fact, we premiered the same week as South Park. And mm. I don't know if you remember, Ben and I and Matt and Trey appeared in front of the Television Critics Association together, the four of us. <laughs> and critics were attacking them. It's funny to like think about this now. People were genuinely angry that they were going to put an animated show that had like, adult themes and language on the air. And I got defensive of them, even though I'd not even seen the show. And I started fighting with some of the reporters. <laughs> and it just became this bit of a melee. And I was on the radio at the time. I was Jimmy, the sports guy on, on K-Rock. Midway through this TCA panel, either Matt or Trey turned to me and goes, oh, are you Jimmy, the sports guy? <laughs> and I said, yes. And I continued haranguing the reporters who were attacking them. But it was funny. Yeah, we started right at the same time. Same week. I got one for you, Jimmy. And I had actually forgotten about this. And I was reminded about this uh, this past summer by uh, your manager and my friend, James Babydoll Dixon. Yes. I want to say this was in the summer of 1998. Craig Kilborn uh, had announced he was leaving The Daily Show and going to CBS. And we were looking for a new host. It would be some time before we actually approached John Stewart. But uh, I remember you and Ben came out to a cable convention in Chicago called CTAM. And we went to dinner and I offered you the host of The Daily Show, which yeah. you turned me down at the table. Right. I did. Now, this was not the John Stewart Daily Show yet. This had been the Craig Kilborn Daily Show. <laughs> but yet you were still just the guy from Win Ben Stein's Money. I was making $550 a show at that time. <laughs> I turned it down. I don't even remember why. You know what? I think, of course, The Daily Show wasn't what it became no. when John took over. It was the show on after us, <laughs> and I thought it was fine, but I just didn't want 
to move to New York, maybe. I don't know why I said no to it. It just seemed like it would be chaotic to have to uproot my family and move to New York to do this show that I didn't really have a feel for. I, I guess if, now looking back, it, it didn't make a lot of sense. And Baby Doll was not in my life at that time. And had he been, maybe he would have suggested that I was crazy to say no to this. But I do remember quite quickly ruling that out and going, no, nah, no, I don't want to do that. And <laughs> Even though I like offered I you had... $575 to host the <laughs> show. And I didn't have another plan. <laughs> and I was flattered, but I just didn't want to do it. Well, it all seemed to work out. Yeah, no, you guys, I mean, you really lucked out. (laughs) That show would never have been what it was if I was hosting. It would not even have occurred to me to talk about politics or anything going on in the world. I wouldn't have known where to start. But you do that now, Jimmy. I know, but that was a slow evolution. It was a situation where the news became the news. The news used to be much broader. We'd talk about a lot of things. And now the focus is largely, I guess when you get right to the edge of a cliff, you start looking down and you start talking about it because we didn't feel like we were close to the edge of a cliff back then. And so now I feel like my mantra has always been talk about what people are talking about. So I do stick to that. And right now it seems to be people are talking about COVID and the presidency and the Congress Mm -hmm. and I'm pretty focused on that. Right. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Let's talk about The Man Show. I got the sense that there was some element of we're kind of trying to satirize the frat bro culture, but I'm not sure if everybody understood that it was satire. So I'm wondering like how you formulated the idea. It was, listen, I could say it was purely satire, but it wasn't purely satire. It was kind of a mix of whatever popped into our heads at the time. I've never been a frat bro. I wouldn't even use the word bro. (laughs) I was not in a fraternity. I dislike the idea of being in a fraternity. I just wasn't that kind of guy. Never have been. Most people didn't even realize I was married and had two young children. I've always been a Democrat, a liberal, all of those things. And Mm -hmm. I saw it as a character in the same way married with children. Then really Benny Hill was a big influence on what we wanted to do. And I had this idea and it was probably inspired by Howard Stern. If you put a bunch of attractive women on television in bikinis that people would watch the show. We used to do that a lot in the 70s and it seemed kind of retro to me. Mm -hmm. When we came up with the idea and I was just I went for a meeting with a producer who wanted me to host a daytime talk show with this woman, Ellen Kay, who was Rick Dees' sidekick. And when I left Mm -hmm. the meeting, I was like, oh, my God, what? That sounds just terrible. What am I? I'm going to talk about the you know, what am I going to talk? This is just not me at all. And I was mad at my manager when I left and I called Adam Carolla on the phone at the time. We were on the radio together and we wanted to do a radio show together and no one would let us do a show together, which is funny now looking back. But I said, Adam, I just had this terrible meeting. Howard set me up with this hack producer and they had this stupid idea about us doing a talk show in the daytime for women. I want to do a show for guys. And that's when I thought of the title, The Man Show. And Mm -hmm. the only idea I had for it was at the end of the episode we would have women in bikinis jumping on trampolines. I figured that would be a way to keep people through the show. And mm-hmm. it was also just sounded dumb. And, <laughs> and so Adam was like, uh, yeah, you know, another one of my ideas is like, yeah, all right, whatever. <laughs> I'll do that. And I started thinking about it. And, and then um, again, John Stewart, who really has been like kind of in the middle of a lot of things for me, John Stewart came out to a concert called the weenie roast, which we'd have in Irvine every year. K-Rock Weenie Roast. He wanted to see Foo Fighters. And so uh, he called me and asked me if I can get him tickets. And he showed up with this guy named Daniel Kellison, who had been a producer on Letterman and who at the time had just been the executive producer of the Rosie O'Donnell show and was producing a talk show called Vibe that Quincy Jones produced. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, love Letterman. I'd never really met anybody who worked at the show. And so I had a million questions for him and we became friendly. And I told him about this idea. It so happened that he was a fan of Adam Carolla's because Adam was a radio host doing a show called Loveline. Right. And I said, I have this idea for the show called The Man Show. And it was definitely up Daniel's alley. And then Michael Davies came back into the picture and I said, Michael, I have this idea. And he said, I love this idea. Will you pitch this to ABC? I'm working for ABC now. And I would like this to be my first pitch to my bosses who are Stu Bloomberg and Jamie Tarsus. And so we go in there and we pitch this crazy show. 
And they loved it. They bought it in the room. Jamie Tarsus was like, I love it. This is great. They bought it in the room. We made a pilot. Apparently, it was a a screening that threatened the careers of many. It was one of these things where (laughs) Michael Eisner was like, what the fuck is this? You want me to put this on television? (laughs) Yeah, I I, want to pause for a second. Yeah. In what world did you think this was going to be on ABC? Like, that just seems like a big swing to expect network television to put that on. You know, it's funny. I look back at my life and the biggest question I ask myself is, what was I thinking at that time? (laughs) I mean, I just had that thought when Doug was telling me I turned down The Daily Show, which I remember well. We were at that steakhouse in Chicago. Yes. I don't remember much well, but I don't know what I was thinking. I got fired from every radio job because... (laughs) I thought my bosses would think it was funny if I made fun of them or if I called their wives on the air and got into their sex lives. You know, this kind of stuff that quite obviously is unacceptable and is not going to make you any friends. But I just thought it would be great to be a stain on the ABC Disney television network. I wanted to be on ABC. I didn't want to be on Comedy Central because Comedy Central already had South Park. And Doug was like, you're out of your mind. And we got a lot of offers. FX really wanted the show obviously we went to comedy central but ultimately i felt comfortable with the gang at comedy central and they offered us 26 episodes right off the bat that was the crazy thing we made so many episodes of that show every season and now these people are complaining when they get an order for 10 episodes it's like oh boy we have to do 10 episodes in a year i was like wow we did 26 every six months in a, in a total of six months each time and explains why some of the bits were terrible <laughs> when davies brought that show in he brought it we what we screened it in my office i thought it was hilarious and outrageous and i said did you actually show this to michael eisner and he said yes and i said you are my hero <laughs> i just could i mean even by comedy central standards it was like there were i want to say there were chimpanzees involved there were chimpanzees yeah there were um Yes, there were there were monkeys, there were dogs, there was a lot of whatever you might see in one of those uh, poker paintings. We wanted on the show. We animated those trucker mud flaps with the silhouettes of the large-breasted women. Just any kind of little like guy thing we wanted to make something out of. That was the idea. It was a sketch comedy show with uh, an umbrella point of view. And by the end of the fourth season, we'd run out of stuff to talk about. Really, it was starting to repeat ourselves. So I have to ask this question out of genuine curiosity. Maybe it's to both of you, Doug and Jimmy. Did anybody at any point say, you know what, this seems kind of misogynistic. Is this going to be a problem? Or did that not cross anybody's mind? Never. It was actually designed to be that. We went on in the promos and told women they were not allowed to watch the show. Our audience was 38% female. And our producers were women. We never really felt that it was genuinely misogynistic. You know, people look back on it, but we didn't really mean any of that stuff. We were just being funny. You know, we're just doing characters. So no, because people knew us, I think is probably why. And they knew who we were. We worked with them. So they knew we were just goofing around. Mm -hmm. Right. That question should probably have been asked. Yeah. But why do you think women, I mean, to your point that you had women in the studio audience, you had a lot of female viewers, why do you think they enjoyed it? I think they're just maybe reminding them their brothers or their husbands or whatever. And there were funny sketches. There were some genuinely clever sketches. Like in the first episode, 
We did a sketch where we set up signs at the farmer's market to repeal the 19th Amendment. And many women signed this petition because we called it Stop Woman Suffrage. And it sounds like suffering. So a lot of people signed these documents, really like signing away their right to vote. And it was funny. It was just like a, a man on the street bit with a little twist is what we went for. Right. I've been thinking about, in general, the landscape around that time a lot, just as Doug and I have been working on this podcast. And we talked about this, Doug. There was just a lot of stuff that was guys being dumbasses that was kind of like in the culture, like Beavis and Butthead, The Man Show, Jackass. Like that was very much of the time. And we look back at it now and go, oh, my God, I can't believe they were doing that. It was just such a different time that as a woman, I don't think I loved it, but I was like, what am I going to do about it? (laughs) Like, it just felt like it was the default. The craziest thing is when you look back at old episodes of Maxim magazine and you see women who are respected actresses or whatever, you know, just in bikini shots. It's just so strange. It's hard to believe it happened. But if you look back at some of those magazines, it'll blow your mind. I mean, it's nuts. We created a whole network around it at Spike TV. And literally right. got so guy centric, we chased all the female viewers away. But everybody remember, thought like that's okay. At I the time. remember pitching right. you the Man Channel. Do you remember that? I do. I do and I you're do like, that, that is a yeah. great idea, the Man Channel. And then I did it without you. <laughs> yeah, but you gave it the wrong name, and that's why it's not around anymore. <laughs> Just take us through like the sort of winding down the Man Show, and then ending up as a late night host on network television. The Man Show, we'd done four seasons, and Adam and I decided we'd had enough. We didn't like the audience. They were just screaming, yelling. It just became something other than what we intended it to be. It felt like a strip club. It wasn't fun. We started to kind of dislike the people who were sitting in front of us. Every taping was like a tailgate party. There were hundreds of people in the parking lot wanting to get in and drinking, and it was crazy. It's just not my kind of thing, you know? And so we decided we're going to stop doing the show. Now, we never really ran that by anyone at Comedy Central, and we didn't even think about the fact that our ratings were the highest they'd ever been in that fourth season. And it never occurred to us that somebody at Comedy Central might go, no, 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 you guys can't quit the show. We just were like, yeah, OK, we're going to stop doing the show. And we also had no plan for the next thing. Again, I don't know what I was thinking, but I do know that I was done with the show and I was working at Fox Sports at the time. And that was barely even a part time job. And ABC offered me this talk show totally out of the blue. And they offered me the show and I said, yeah, that's something I would like to do. But somehow ABC paid Comedy Central for me. They bought me from them because Hmm. I was under contract. I think they gave them a million dollars worth of promotion. Nobody paid me for Craig Kilborn, I'll tell you that. I think of basic cable at that time as being a little bit like the Wild West and the network was like, oh, now I have to be professional. But what did it feel different? Was it a culture shock to you at all? I come from radio, so I had no sense of what television was supposed to be like. And in fact, the biggest thing for me was they had snacks and we never had (laughs) snacks on the radio. We had to buy our own snacks. We barely had coffee. Like, you know, it's a very, very different world. So it felt like a huge step up, even though we were doing a low budget cable game show. 
that really, I think like the show was on for two months before anyone even recognized me. Our studio audience, the first season, two seasons were largely people who didn't speak English. They would just get people in to hear the sound of their clapping. They'd bring tourists in. And I remember one show in particular, I felt I was being pretty funny. I was getting no laughs. And I decided, I got to just talk to this audience, see what's going on. And I realized, I was like, do any of you speak English? And what four of them raised their hands. But so it was a really low budget situation. I didn't know it, though, because it seemed like a big budget situation to me. But once you got to ABC, did that feel very different from Comedy Central? Um, not really, because a lot of the people came along with me. So a lot of the people that we wanted to keep on from the man show came to ABC with me. And so we kind of set it up in the same way. It was terrible, though, doing that show at ABC the first couple of years. It was brutal. We were on live from 9.05 p.m. to 10.05 p.m. every night, Monday through Friday. My kids were young and they would sleep in bunk beds in my office. I had gotten divorced just about six months before I was offered the show. So I was trying to be a decent father. And I was in an office that had no windows. I had like a little sunlight machine I'd shine on my face. It was like I was like a dying fern. And every (laughs) night was a fiasco. We had no one booked many nights. It was 5 p.m. We had no guest. It was uh, just a scramble all the time. It was exhausting and terrible. And if I'd known what it was going to be like, I would not have left Comedy Central. We were also doing Crank Anchors at the time. I feel that mm-hmm. maybe we forgot that part of my basic. No, kid. we're going we're gonna to get back to that. Oh. But the amazing thing is, after the struggle, here we are in 2022, and you are now the longest tenured late night host. You are the dean of late night. How does that feel? Well, it's great when I get to call the other hosts into my office and explain, (laughs) reprimand them. Uh, It feels weird. It doesn't feel great, to be honest with you. I like being the young guy. You know, I like being the the upstart. It's different being the elder statesman or whatever I am. And it's funny. It doesn't feel like it's been 19 years, but in some other ways, it feels like it's been more than 19 years. And I am just as surprised as anyone is that we're still on the air. So you mentioned Crank Anchors. Let's talk about that. Where did that idea come from? Crank Anchors was my idea. I used to make a lot of crank calls on the radio. It was a big part of my act, I guess. And I really think if I could pick one thing I'm best at in my life, it's making crank calls. It's <laughs> it is my calling, literally. And I always loved doing them. And people always responded to them in a big way. And crank calls are, I think they're thought of as a very juvenile thing. And they are. But they're also an interesting and different form of improv comedy because you've got one person, sometimes more, who are driving the comedy and another person who is not who does not know they're in a comedy sketch. And that's fun. The best calls are about the reactions more than what the crank caller is saying. I always loved claymation and I wanted it to be a claymation show. And that did not prove to be feasible just from a financial standpoint. I really think at the time, Comedy Central was looking to find a way to pay us more because the production company we were working with was pocketing the lion's share of the money and not doing a whole lot. And so 
they came up with this situation where they said, okay, well, do you have any ideas? And I was at dinner with Bill Hillary, who was the guy running the network at the time. And I told him about Crank Anchors. At the time, I wanted it to be a claymation show. And he's like, that's great. We should do that. And he ordered 10 episodes just right off the bat. Looking back, I realized he was really just trying to figure out a way to pay us a little more because the man show was doing very well. But we then figured puppets were the way to go. And I also love the idea of the show looking like Sesame Street and being filthy. I like that contrast. Maybe in the same way I wanted the man show to be on ABC. I like that incongruence. So Bill picked up the show and it was a hit kind of right away. And it's still mm -hmm. on Comedy Central. We've done four seasons over the last three years. We've done four more seasons of that show. Well, the puppets <laughs> never get old. It's enduring. Yeah, the puppets never ask for more money. For me, the most fun show to do. Well, so obviously within the context of that show, they can continue to make crank calls, but I feel like you can't make crank calls anymore in real life. People don't pick up their phone. They look at it like, I don't know who this is, and they don't pick it up. You have to call businesses. And that's, <laughs> we call businesses or people who posted ads on Craigslist or whatever, people that were inclined to pick up the phone. Okay. But we try to be careful. We don't call people who are doing important things. We won't call a hospital or a doctor, you know, whatever. We, we try to limit it to party supply stores and people <laughs> whose time we aren't wasting. And at the end of these calls, sometimes people get really mad, but they almost always think it's funny when we call them back and tell them what happened. There's a sense of relief, and now they know the show. So even if they haven't seen Crank Anchors, they have an idea of what it is. It's just a lot of fun to do, to have all these calls lined up, and you're sitting there making call after call. Like, you know, I've got a whitewater river rafting company on the line and I'm pretending to be Ariana Grande's assistant and I'm making all these outrageous <laughs> demands about like and are there are there any Starbucks along the way along the river and they're like well I know it's it's a, it's a river and it's also heartening to find how patient and kind people are when you call them and have a one-on-one -on -one conversation so mm -hmm. that's a fun show to do Hey, Jimmy, were you uh, at all involved yeah I know you were already doing your ABC show with the Jackhole Kanye puppet show that you're sure, I was executive producer. Of that. I'm dying so, to know what this is. Yeah, So tell our listeners who have never seen the show because it only made it to the pilot stage what that was all about. It was called Alligator Boots. Kanye liked crank anchors and he sought us out and said he wanted to do a show. And we were excited and we're fans of his. And this was a long time ago. You know, this is a, a full 20 years ago. He wanted to do like a black Muppet show, which I still think is a great idea. And we made this show. And in fact, he met Kim Kardashian on this show. That's how they met. Maybe I shouldn't tell anyone that anymore. <laughs> he booked her as a special guest. It was a funny show. It could have been better. It definitely was one of the shows like if we did it again, it would be great. It was fun working with Kanye. He was a lot of fun. He was really into it. He was super cool, very friendly. He flew Southwest out to uh, my partner, Daniel Kellison's wedding in Austin, Texas. He took pictures with everybody. He was great. Is it on YouTube? You know, it was. It's in little I, small pieces. Yeah. The lawyers did their best to get it off of YouTube. But yeah, there are some little pieces of it on YouTube, but not the whole show. I want to ask kind of a broad question, and I, and I hope it doesn't put you on the spot too much. I don't know how long you plan to keep doing the late night show, but have you thought at all about what you might want to do next whenever that time comes? And does well, it involve basic cable? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have no idea 
what I will do. I know I'll produce shows. That's the only thing I know for sure that I'll produce shows after I finish doing the show. It is funny though, is that every interview I do, people want to know when I'm going to leave and I'm starting to take it personally. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I had Sean White, the Olympic snowboarder on my show last night. And we we're talking about how funny it is when you start getting older and Sean White's 35, which is ancient for an Olympian. Everybody is asking you when you're going to retire. And then as soon as you retire, people are asking you if you're going to come back. It goes like from one mm-hmm. thing right to the other. And so I do not know is the answer. I don't think I will ever take anything as time consuming on again. I don't think I'll ever do anything like this again. ABC wants me to stay forever, and that's not going to happen. I'm going to have to leave eventually. I just haven't figured it all out yet. Mm-hmm. Besides anything you've been associated with, mm-hmm. what is your all-time favorite basic cable show? Oh, that's a very good question, because that if I had to name my all-time favorite show, I would say Late Night with David Letterman. My wow, you didn't say Lost. <laughs> Lost is way up there, but nothing will ever make a bigger impact on me than that. My all-time favorite basic cable show. Hmm. I have to give this thought because I'll kick myself to the end of time if I say something and then think of something else afterward. Okay, this is a weird choice. But you know what show I love? Inside the NBA on TNT. (laughs) I love it. I love Barkley and Shaq. I I just really enjoy that show. That's a strong choice. Yeah. Thank you. I believe most of the time, but particularly during playoff season, it is must-see cable TV. You know how I know it's a great show? My wife has absolutely no interest in sports, and she will sit down and watch it with me. You know? my, those guys, they have a great chemistry. They're super yeah. funny. It's not scripted. It just takes on its own rhythms. It's a great choice. That's what it's all about, the chemistry. That's what it's all about. You can have a great idea, and it just doesn't work if the chemistry between the people on screen isn't there. I got lucky with Adam and I got lucky with Ben and I got lucky with Guillermo and it's just how it goes. Can't believe you didn't say Shacked in the Fool. It was right there. <laughs> I was on that show. I was on oh, Shacked in the Fool. Not only was I on Shacked in the Fool, I drove Shaq to the prank and <laughs> I had an SUV at the time. He couldn't fit in the front seat. He had to lay across the back seat of my car. And then when we got to the hotel where we shot the prank, Shaq told everyone at the hotel, all the employees that he'd just purchased the hotel and they all believed it. That wasn't even part of the prank. That was just us walking to the room. Well, Jimmy, we are so happy you were able to do this with us today. We really really appreciate it. Thank you for um, my career. (laughs) I don't have anything to do with that. Despite all your success, you remain a prince of a guy. And everybody should know that Jimmy Kimmel is one of the A-plus human beings out there. Hopefully you had a good enough time and we can come back again because we never got to ask about Andy Milanakis. Oh, Uh, there's so many many other subjects to tackle. Yeah, I feel like Comedy Central was, and I didn't really go to college. I, I was going to college, but I had no college experience. I feel like that was my version of college. You know, I look back and I remember like, Amy Poehler starting out right at that time and Tom Lennon and Matt and Trey and all of these people that you'd see at the company parties and the promo shoots. And I look back on that very fondly. Those are good times. It's good days. Good times. Good all time. right, Jimmy, we appreciate it, man. Thanks yeah, so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really both. appreciate it. Appreciate it. So Jimmy Kimmel, who has come a long way from his days of the man show, I guess, right? Thank God. 
Yes, he has come a, a, a long way from the man show. It was very interesting to talk about that, though, because, I mean, it really keeps driving home for me just how, for lack of a better word, unintentionally toxic the culture was back then in the 90s and in the early 2000s. And just even with a female producer on that show, as Jimmy pointed out, it still was super misogynistic, even if that wasn't the intent. It certainly came across that way. Yeah, it's it's incredible how much the world and culture has changed since then. We all lived in it, and certainly I participated in, in it to a certain degree, and it was just the way things were, and nobody really ever in those days, raised a lot of red flags or said, hey, is this okay? Right. Obviously, that has changed enormously. That show would never be greenlit now, I don't think, um, or if it somehow existed. Maybe only be- on Barstool Sports or something. <laughs> Please don't suggest that they start making original programming because I, I cannot take another network doing that. Yeah, but I mean, I, obviously, it would have been absolutely massacred on social media if it existed now. But at the time, I think even among some women, it was either just it might have annoyed them, but you didn't think there was anything you could do about it. So it was just like, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah, there was a, there was a, I think there were, you tell me, I'm not a, I'm not a woman, but there was just like, oh, it's just boys being boys kind of thing. And you try and ignore it and wave it off and not participate if you don't have to. Yeah, pretty much. That's a fair summary. But, you know, it's, it's incredible that Jimmy's reputation now is just very different. I think he's looked at as somebody who's not only very funny, but has really in recent years kind of set a tone for how to talk about politics in a very personal way on his show. You know, I, for one, would not have seen that coming from watching The Man Show. <laughs> so it's it's interesting to see how much someone can evolve. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I did not see that coming. And I know Jimmy for a long time and I've been watching him closely for a long time and just did not think that that was a place he was ever going to go. And he's gone all the way there now. And it's he's doing a good job. And, and uh, I think it says a lot about him as not only a person, but a performer and his ability to adapt and change and, you know, not stick with one thing that he knows can work. He's done a good job at evolving as a late night host in a world where not many of them do. And I'm certainly did not mean to put pressure on him about retiring. But having said that, when he does reach that point, I'm very curious to see what he does next, because you have maybe the most recent retiree, Conan O'Brien, he's planning to do something on HBO Max. And obviously he has a very successful podcast. Uh, I just wonder what direction Jimmy will go in. Um, But I guess time will tell. Yeah, he will stay busy. You know, he's got his own production company and they produce a bunch of things. He still loves making crank anchors. I mean, this is a guy who told us his favorite thing was making crank calls more than anything else. So he's a very busy, curious guy, loves cooking, loves food, loves television, loves radio. Who knows? Maybe he'll move into our podcast space, Jen. We'll see. We can't take another competitor. No, not, not, not one like him. There's enough out there. Well, thank you all for listening today. And we look forward to talking with you again on the next episode of Basic. Basic is a Pantheon media production in partnership with Sirius XM. Hosted by Jen Chaney. And Doug Herzog. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Lindley Ehrlich is our assistant producer. Mixed, mastered, and music by Jerry Danielson. Edited by Zach Spisner. You can find Basic on Apple Podcasts, the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't Don't forget to follow the show so you never miss an episode. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.